Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Radically Loved. We have the honor of welcoming Gary John Bishop back onto the show. So for those of you longtime listeners who know who I'm talking about, I bet you're excited, as am I, to have Gary back on the show. He's got a new book out, Becoming the Parent Your Kids Deserve, Grow Up. And if you're familiar with his work, he's got a lot of other books out there. And Rosie and Gary most recently talked about Love Unfucked. So I'll make sure that I get that link into the show notes in case you want to check that episode out, check that book out. It's got great wisdom in it, and I know you'll enjoy it. So Gary, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Tessa. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I just feel so honored that I get to be the one to talk to you today. And I know Rosie's going to be super jealous. <laughs> All right. There's a couple of things that I want to highlight about this conversation in particular that really stood out to me when I was reading the book. And it's from the introduction, the very beginning of the book. And these two things are, number one, I'm just going to read straight from the book. In terms of a challenge, the job of being a parent is most closely followed by getting over being raised by parents which points to why this book is a must for all human beings, regardless of their parental status. So if you're tuning into this show and you're like, well, I'm not a parent, it might not apply to me, I would beg to differ. <laughs> I'd say, listen, and I think for me, I can definitely resonate with this because I, I haven't birthed my own children, but I have nieces and nephews, and a lot of this work for me is learning how to reparent myself. And then the second thing is that this is from page six. This book is not for you to insist your parents read or for you to give to your children in the forlorn hope that it will fix the shit you've been pointing to about them. This book is completely, entirely, and 100% for you to see where you are in the equation and to make fucking change, not only as a parent, but also as a decent, grounded human being. So... I just wanted to point those two things out to kind of set the tone for a conversation today because it really does cast a wide net. And I think we human beings can really all benefit from your work, Gary. And so with that said, is there anything you'd want to add? No, I really tried to cast a wide net with this book because the challenge of, of raising children is one thing. Yeah, I think you accomplished that. Right. <laughs> But the other big challenge is, you know, for many of us, it's contextualizing our own childhood and maybe starting to see our parents in a different light, which was another big challenge in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I definitely resonate with that myself. I think the challenge, like, how do we, how do we do that actual work of, you know, it's a matter of like taking ownership for living your life as an adult and redirecting that blame or the judgment on our parents and starting to do the actual work of self-development. Where do we start with stuff like that? Well, I think you have to realize 
one of the things that I was out to point to in the book was um, there's a kind of arrogance these days. People talk about breaking a generational chain, like this is the first generation of it to give that a go. You know, I mean, every generation has tried to break the chain. And what I wanted to, to kind of highlight in the book was why that can never be done until you address something. And I think the first thing you really need to confront is how not unique your childhood is. It's a very human childhood you had, even if it was, in your view, like a really, maybe a really bad one or an okay one or a boring one. There's a loop at play that your parents had no shot at breaking that and your grandparents had no shot at breaking that. So a few topics I want to call out to definitely make sure we cover today. Central themes from the book. The big one for me is blame. How do we stop blaming our parents for, you know, (laughs) all the things, (laughs) childhood experiences, adulthood experiences. Uh, Second theme I want to pull on is authenticity, truth-telling. I think from a lens of being an adult and, and speaking with children and helping emulate that behavior. Uh, And then third one is what shaped us as children and how we carry that through our lives. Do you want to start with blame? Well, blame's an easy one to start with. This was a subject that I really took some time with because I wanted to really investigate blame for myself. I wanted to sit with it. I, I know what blame does. I think everybody knows what blame does. But the thing that, if you just think of the human condition, it's not really readily explainable why we deal with them. And where I landed was something like, it's got a lot to do with belonging. And so, you know, if you're to blame and you're seen as being to blame, then whoever's blaming you, you don't get to connect and bond and like that. So the way that I looked at it was, it's very much a tribal thing, blame. Now, on its own, blame can be uh, innocuous and but a little bit kind of creeping. Even if I've heard many people say this over the years, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just explaining to you what happened. And it's kind of hard to see the degree to which you're actually still blaming because it creeps into your language, right? And so it ends up sounding like an explanation. So when I dived into this book, I thought, well, one of the big components we hear about a lot is this thing called forgiveness, which many, many, many people find hard to handle. Because when you get to forgiveness, it seems like you feel as if somebody did something wrong. And if you forgive them, it kind of makes whatever they did okay. And so people are like, I'm not going to do that. So I say, well, what if there's no blame involved? What if there's an absence of blame? How easy is it to forgive? And it's wildly easy to forgive in the absence of blame. And in fact, again, when I dug into it a bit more, Tess, it was more like blame is the anchor to the past. Like it, there's nothing else. It's only that, right? It's the only thing that keeps you tied back there. And it perpetuates and it keeps going. So the degree to which you blame is the degree to which you're grounded in what came before. Or before. So, but for me anyway, you know, it was like, how do I undo that knot? And that's a big part of this book is, how do I undo that knot? And, and, and I'm including, by the way, this is easy to see if you either still have or had some kind of upset with your parents for the way you were raised. No, no, this includes people who feel as if they have no upset with their parents for the way they were raised. Because 
the subtlety of blame will be in your narrative. It'll be in there. Yeah. So I think my follow-up question to this idea of forgiveness and blame, and they seem just so intertwined, and I understand what you're saying on an intellectual level, but part of me goes, well, wait a minute, what if I'm truly a victim and have been wronged and justice needs to be served in, in terms of something really overt in terms of abuse in childhood? How do we come to terms with that? Well, if that's what's coming at your mouth, you're not ready to deal with it yet. Mm-hmm. You're just not at that point. You're still wrestling with it. So I say to people, okay, I'm not going to force you to come out of there. The only way you'll come out of there is if you start to see the damage that's currently being done in the quality of your current life. That might tease you out. Then you might be like, well, well, this is a bit stupid. And because that's the weird thing about blame, blaming yourself, blaming somebody else. doesn't matter. You'll pay and you will pay. And again, that's the kind of creepy nature of it. We become so accustomed to having it in our lives that we're like, well, so what? You're not fully aware of the damage that's happening and, and that you're having to live with. And many people won't even touch the subject. And I say, yeah, that's right. So you're willing to let that run your life. And so it's not a case of, you know, how do I let it go? It's not a case of that. It's how committed are you to hanging on to it? That's helpful perspective. <laughs> Apparently, I'm in the camp of not ready to let it go. You know, that resistance you feel, it's like, okay, I get that. And I could see how I could apply it to somebody else's situation. But putting it into practice just seems like, where would I even start with that? Well, let me give you a little something else. Blame is simply the desire to punish. There's nothing else to it. It's the desire to punish. Now, if you follow on to that statement and you say, well, what are the ways that I'm currently punishing, right? So people punish by withdrawing their love. People punish by being silent, right? People punish by being angry or frustrated and on and on and on, all those different things. So the big thing you have to confront is you have now become the punisher. That's who you've become. You've become the one who's like, I'm going to make my life about punishment. And then people wonder why they're not happy. Well, you might want to start there. Yeah, that's a good place to start. And it's hard to take. I know. Oh my gosh, it's so hard to take. Because especially if like you're the one who feels like you were done unto, right? But as I say all throughout this book, I've actually touched on this in other books. The damage of what was done is the damage of what was done. There'll be more damage than that with what you do with what was done. Yeah. I think this kind of brings us into the realm of what shaped us as children is what we carry through our lives, through adulthood, through adolescence into, you know, it depends, I I guess, how long it takes us to be ready to look at it, how long it takes us to be willing to change or to let go of blame. But yeah, I guess I, I wanted to hear you talk about this idea of how it's almost like what we learn in childhood whether it be trauma, something we experience as good or bad, it's like this thing that we try to replicate because it's a known entity. And so sometimes the antidote to do to that might be to do the opposite. Well, that's kind of the only two modes we've got, right? I mean, we don't really have much else. You know, one of the things that, again, you know, I sat on this book for a long time. Like I sat on what is it that gets in our, I started with what gets in our way being parents, okay, started there. 
it immediately leads you to what gets in our way of being the child of one. Right? You can't get away with it. And then the third piece that I had to address was what would it be like to be a child of mine? Like, what am I giving you? What am I demonstrating to you? What am I communicating subconsciously? What's the world I'm raising you in that'll become part of your reality? And then you'll see why, you know, when people talk about something like a generational chain or breaking a generational chain, you don't get to just do that by doing the opposite of what was done to you. And that is because, you know, as Sartre, the French existentialist, would have said, we make meaning out of everything. So whatever you feel as if was done to you, you're not burdened by what was done to you. You're burdened by what you made all that mean. And your children will do the same no matter what you do. They'll make it mean something that may well not even be your intent. But that that's what's coming. And that's the fascinating thing to me. That's what I wanted to get people's attention on in this book. I wanted to say, stop looking at the circumstances. Start looking at the mechanism. Start looking at, like, what are we doing? What will our children likely do? What did our parents do when they were children? Then you'll see something play that this that might surprise you. Yeah. I think I've heard, and I don't know if there's a specific timeline for this, but I think, I believe it might have been Jungian theory where there's this idea that it takes you into your 30s to come to terms with wanting to reconcile with parents. And I think about the idea of this narrative that we've been telling ourselves, whether it be good or bad, what really is the truth in all of that? How do you get to the bottom of it? I wonder what you think about, you know, sitting down face to face with a parent and having a conversation like, hey, I blamed you for X, Y, and Z in childhood. And now I want to unpack it with you and understand it better. And is there a way to do that? Yeah. Yeah. That is, let me coach you first. That'd be the first thing you do because you'll inevitably get to blame. It's very hard to have that conversation with a blame creeping in. So then the conversation never gets to open. It just ends up being contested. You have to realize everybody in the planet's in their own little bubble. I don't care whether it's your mom or your dad or your grandfather, or your sister, or your neighbor, everyone's in their own little bubble with their own experience of life. And quite frankly, as we're experiencing life, we are quite literally making things up. So it's, it's, again, it's not, the truth is what happened. The trick is can I separate what happened from what I've made up about it. And those two phenomena are so closely intertwined, you can't see the difference at the beginning. You can't see it. It's just like, I mean, I'll give you an example, right? So when I was, when I used to look back at my childhood, I would say my father was this kind of man. My mom was this kind of woman. These were her tendencies, but it wasn't like these were her tendencies. This was like, this is how she is all the time. And this is what it was like for me. And here's what I got to. Eventually, I got to my father consumed more alcohol than was healthy for him. And, and behaved accordingly. I had nothing else to add to that. Now, for years and years and years and years and years, I had a lot to add to that about me and what it was like for me. And then, 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 then. But there's a, there only is one what happened. And what happened was he was a man who drank more alcohol than was healthy for him. And there was an impact to that. But that's, and by the way, the impact to that 
is where I was dwelling. And for me as a human being, emotionally, that's what all the juice was, right? That was, that was where I could justify who I was becoming and the juice of it. But then when I got to, and there was a point where I got to, my father drank more alcohol and was healthy for him. There was nothing to blame anymore. He had to deal with his life and he was equipped in whatever way he was equipped and he found whatever solutions he thought were going to work for him, just like I did. So the generational chain, if I look at it on the surface, I might say something like, oh, never going to drink alcohol and treat you know, people that way, and da, 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 which was all just whatever way I was about to act, my children were going to grow up and add meaning to that. So I had to step back and say, it's just one generation after another handing, you know, handing off their drama. That's all it is. And then your attempt to not hand off the drama doesn't interrupt the fact that your child will add their own. Well, okay, so this brings me to the subject of, I think it's in the realm of authenticity with our children, truth-telling to our children. And I think a lot of that has to do with how we, just like what you're saying, show up as parents as a result of what shaped us in our childhood. And so I'd like to hear you first just talk about authenticity and truth-telling as a parent. And then I have some more specific questions to follow up with. Firstly, the biggest pretense for parents is the pretense that you have it all together or slash, you know, not or slash know what you're doing. So that's the first inauthenticity, right? And it's a big one. It's like the elephant in the room. Like, you know what you're doing, but you don't. You don't know what you're doing. That's part of the panic and the anxiety of it and the overwhelm and the disconnect, right? Because, you know, somewhere in there, you're keeping score. So that's the first inauthenticity. My problem with authenticity, though, just in general, is I think it's a word that's been used to justify complaints. So it's a word that's been used to justify vocalizing your upsets. If you want to vocalize your upsets, go ahead. Just don't call it authenticity, though. It's not authentic. It's not authentically who you are. And ultimately, that's what authenticity is. It's sharing who you are authentically with no blame. <laughs> and you can't even blame yourself in it. And you don't even get to explain yourself. It's not about explaining yourself. So you talked a little bit earlier, the example you gave is going to your parents and saying, listen, I've been blaming you. That's authentic. That's real. What usually what we want to do is we want to follow on with why we've been doing it. It's irrelevant now. That I've been doing it. So if I use your example as an example, right? And, you know, I've gone through these scenarios with people many, many, many times to say to somebody, I've been blaming you. And I noticed that in the years or months or weeks or whatever, I've been blaming you. The impact of that is I'm disconnected. I'm not connected to you. I'm making you wrong. And, and I don't know what that's been like for you, but it's important to me that I authentically share that with you rather than just pretending that I'm not doing that because I am doing it. And I'm not going to justify myself. I'm not even going to give reasons and excuses and why. I'm just owning that, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Now, you lay that in the middle of a conversation. It is very challenging to be inauthentic back at that. So you've created an environment for authenticity. It doesn't always necessarily mean you're going to get anything by. But you get to at least just kind of, 
Now I can just be myself. Like, this is kind of what I've been doing. So authenticity as a parent, and I talk about it, you know, in the book, I say, stop pretending you know what you're doing. And that was one of the first things I had to acknowledge to my children. Listen, I don't, I don't have all this worked out. I really don't. I've never done this before. And I'm figuring things out. And some of those things I'll get right. And some of them I'm just not going to get right. Now, what does that do with my children? Well, first of all, it gets rid of that, you know, kind of iconic view that they're supposed to have of a parent a parent before it gets crushed, right? Once they have their teens, it gets crushed. I get to authentically connect with them and let them know, by the way, that I know that for them as a child, they're figuring it out too, and that we can both see each other in those terms. And again, it's not loading your problems onto your children, right? It's kind of like, you know, I've been getting a little stressed recently, and there's been too much of it in the family. I've been bringing it in here, and it doesn't belong here. Okay, good. That's authentic, right? I'm not saying, well, here's why, and who cares? Who cares? Like, it's always, I think that's part of the deal. You know, I spoke to a group yesterday in California. I said, we're fascinated by finding out who put the hole in the boat while it's sinking, rather than like, hey, there's a hole in the boat. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should make this situation better. But the other thing that like, I want to kind of add in there on the back end of that is the sort of stuff that I'm talking about, I want people to realize if you're not willing to go down the kind of pathway that I'm talking about, maybe not my pathway, but you might choose somebody else, but you're not willing to kind of traverse that for yourself. I want you to know you're fighting for your misery. You're arguing for no love. You're arguing for disconnect. You're arguing for those things. And that's what you'll be left with. Authentically, that's what you'll be left with. But we can associate ourselves with the reasons, excuses, and justifications for it. Okay, so the follow-on question I have to this conversation around authenticity and truth-telling is what often comes up for me is I haven't had my own kids, but I do have a nephew who lives with us who he's been in our household since he was 15. So I sort of have this parental role. And I think what I struggle with, which what very much comes to the surface in my childhood is when I react emotionally in what I perceive as a negative way. So he does something that triggers me, I get mad, I get upset, and then I either shut down or I maybe lash out at him in some way. And the lash out might be like you were saying, it might be silence, withdrawal, no eye contact. And so I think I wonder about what happens when that happens, you know, in terms of, oh, I saw myself just do that and that's not what I wanted to do. How do I, quote unquote, fix it? Yeah. Do you know you just blamed them? Mm-hmm. Do you know where you just blame them? He does something that triggers me. Yeah, he doesn't do anything of the sort, by the way. Mm-hmm. He does something, you get triggered. Yes. Right? And that's what's real. That's the truth. But do you see the subtlety of blame? Yes. Right? Yeah. And that's what we do. And that's not even personally, you tell, so that's human being at work. That's what we do. So when someone like me comes along and I say, oh, you're blaming him. I'm not. I'm just telling you what happened. I'll say, no, that's not what happens. Here's what happens. They talk, you get hooked. Or they do something and you get hooked. 
I mean, it's fairly clear to me you're playing that kind of parental role, role with your nephew. What's getting hooked? Like what? We're not going to pick this apart right here and now, but that's the, that's the question. That's where you would go, like, I'm going to go right back to Sartre, the French existentialist, right? He does something, says something, you make it mean X, and you respond to that X the same way all the time that you've done since you were a kid. Because it's not what he's doing, not doing, saying, not saying. It's what you're making all of that mean. Like, he doesn't care. He's disrespecting me. He did, 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 like, it's some throwback to your own childhood. That's why this book's important. I a thousand percent agree. <laughs> I guess I'm wondering, is there, a, do you believe there's a way to catch yourself to practice? I think about, you know, Tara Brock talks about the sacred pause where you can practice that space between stimulus and response. Yeah, that's a good practice. I mean, you can definitely practice that. I call it the indulgence of self. Like you're just justifying your own outbursts and emotional outbursts and pointing to the world around you. You get to perpetuate the myth that you've become. And again, I'm not pointing this to you, but just in general terms, we get to perpetuate this myth. We get to perpetuate this persona that arose out of this narrative. And of all the people that one could become, we become this one. And so every day is about just gathering evidence for that same person. So how do you interrupt that? I can see, like, who I become. See, this is a good, I think, a really good example, though, that you're giving here for people. So I thank you for your generosity and contributing to other people. But that would be one of those moments when someone does or says something and then up it all comes and you're like, I'm just being authentic, Right. And I would say, no, you're not being authentic. You're barfing up an old pattern that until this point, Mm -hmm. you haven't been willing to own it as yours. Like, this is what I do, right? And everybody's got their version of it, by the way. So that at least is completely not unique. Some people go quiet and withdraw. Some people get angry. Some people lash out. Some people pretend it's all okay. We've all got our own mechanism for handling it. But There has to come a point where you're saying, I'm no longer going to be that person. That is not who I am. That's the interruption that has to happen. So the one kind of quick little segue I'll give you to get right into it. In that moment, when you're hooked like that, you're disconnected. And in the short conversations you and I have, I know that's not you. That would be like the antithesis of who you are. You're somebody who wants to connect, wants to make a difference like that. But in that moment, you'll abandon it in that moment. So in that moment, I would invite you to try on the idea, rather than indulging the disconnect, how could you connect? Right in the moment, how can I connect with this person? And you would act accordingly because connection will tell you what to do. So it's the invitation to pause and ask yourself, Well, first of all, notice, okay, I'm hooked, I'm triggered. Second of all, how can I connect? And you're saying that answer in terms of how to connect would come intuitively. Oh, right there. It'll be there to be stepped into. It's like when you come to terms with what it's costing you, when you're hooked and you indulge it, and what there is to gain when you're hooked and don't indulge it. Now, I've coached enough people in my life to know 
you're not going to have 100% record with that. Yeah. <laughs> You'll yeah. get it wrong. Those are moments for authenticity and restoration and the acknowledge, take responsibility. Just own it. Own it. Don't blame yourself. Don't blame anybody else. Just say, well, yeah, that was one of those moments. Got away from me. And acknowledge that. Unfortunately, even that, sometimes people who aren't willing to do that work to intervene with themselves consistently enough, they'll just lean on that over and over and over. They'll just lean on, oh, yeah, there I go again. No, it's not good enough. Mm. And, and you won't get it right all the time. But the number of times that you will be able to intervene and make a difference will surprise you. And in those moments, by the way, life took a turn that it was never going to take. That's a victory for, I think, what Jung would have called awareness. I really like that. Thank you. I think that this is a theme in your book as well. One of the biggest things a parent will ever have to acknowledge is their ultimate inability to truly impact the outcome of their own child. Children are going to go in their own direction regardless of what a parent will do to influence them. I mean, for some, this might be a tough pill to swallow, especially if you're like, oh, dear God, they're going down the wrong path, you know. <laughs> can you help me unpack this one? Yes. So, I mean, you can. I can hear people, just as you were sharing that there, I can hear people all over the country, like, losing their minds there, right, and disagreeing heartily, right? And that's okay. You can disagree all you want, right? But the more you try and shape the more they'll resist it. And the evidence for that is overwhelming. It surrounds us. So I think in psychology these days, and I'm not a psychologist, I will say that. In psychology, I think they're calling it lighthouse parenting or something, which is a fancy way of saying something that's been around for thousands of years, okay? That is, I think it was, was it Gandhi who said it? Be the change? I believe that's Gandhi, yeah. Be the change yeah. you want. So you have to be it. See the world. You have to be the presence of something. And that, as I said in the book, you know, like, because I think as parents, again, mostly what we're trying to do with our kids is not what we're trying to do, it's what we're trying to stop happening. So we're organized around our fears. It's kind of like it creates that dynamic between a parent and a child. Like, I don't trust you to get this right. You know, and, and by the way, these are conversations I've had with my wife many times. And I'll say to her, you know, let's, let's just let them work it out. They got to work it out. She'll say, well, they'll screw it up. And I'm like, I know. And then they'll work it out. And that's a challenge, right? Because we love these children and I don't want to see them make mistakes and I don't want to see them suffer. But I do want to make sure they're equipped, which again comes back to, from my point of view as a parent, no judgment. I don't judge my children for what they did or didn't do. There's no judgment from me. There might be consequences to what they did or didn't do, but it will not get in the way of how much I love them. None of that will. That'll win through all the time. And even when it's like, oh my God, what are you doing? You know, like that. Nothing will get in the way of that. And because very early on, not only in my parenting, but in this book, I want to show, I want to be a demonstration of what it is to love another so that they can see it. Oh, that's what loving somebody looks like. I'm not saying this is how you should love somebody. I'm just saying you're going to have to work this out on your own. And this is how I do it. And this works for me. 
I would much rather have children who will forgive than hang on. And the only way they're going to learn how to forgive is to watch me do it with no instruction. Actually see me doing it. So one of the things that I challenge people to do in this book is look in the relationships where you're most stuck in your life and whatever the lesson there is that you would want your child to understand. And, you know, in this book, I talk about love as a big component. How do you love that person? How do you demonstrate what love is, right? And I, I said this in you know, my last book. I said there is only unconditional love. Everything else is just some agreement that you're trying to get around. Love with conditions isn't love. Love knows nothing except itself. Love just is. There's no if you and then I. And if love is absent, then it's absent. But let's not pretend that it's there, kind (laughs) of. It's either there or it's not there. And um, so again, it's being that kind of human being. It's being that kind of person. And, you know, the one little caveat that I'll add to that is, you know, I do have rules in my home. It's not a lot of them but we do have them. And, you know, I don't tell people the rules that they should have in their lives, but I do say keep it simple and have the rules be undeniable. And so all of that creates more like an incubator, like a space for stuff to arise. And again, you got to trust your own children. (laughs) You got to trust them. You got to be like, okay, yeah, I know you'll figure this out. Yeah. I think you're right, though. A lot of that, the reaction or the the desire to stop something from happening before it happens comes from the fear of they'll make a mistake, they will go down the wrong path, they won't be able to fix this, so I'll need to step in and fix it for them. But I do agree with you. I feel like it's a, a big disservice that we do when we step in in that way to not allow our children to learn how to do the fixing for themselves. It's a huge skill that we need to develop. It is, and there's no comfortable way sometimes. There's no comfortable way to get it. You know, you have to kind of stare the problem in the face. And that's the whole notion of phenomenology. Phenomenology is the as-lived experience of something, which you can show somebody tell somebody, instruct someone, give them a sense of it, la, 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 la. None of which will put you in the presence of it until you're in the presence of it. It's like, and I'll use it as the same example, but imagine trying to explain what love is to somebody so that they get it. Mm. <laughs> you can't, you can't, yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you what that is. They're like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. I'm feeling it right now. No. The only way you get love is to be in the presence of it for yourself. And then you're like, oh, this is it. Oh, this is love. And I don't even know if what you're calling love is the same as what I'm calling it. But its presence is unmistakable. You can't mistake it for anything else. I was curious if you had any thoughts around, because you said, and I agree with you here, love is unconditional. And I think one of those traps that we can get stuck in is the same similar to the insidiousness of blame it creeps into our language these conditions as we apply them to love do you have any thoughts around how to catch yourself if you're applying like this idea of conditions to love the only people who argue with that statement are the ones who have conditions currently they're the only ones that argue with it right and then they justify it 
but they never truly confront what they're doing. So I've heard this. I mean, I've said, right, the, the term that I used is love is a responsibility. Some people say love is a choice. And there's a degree of truth in that. Like, can I locate myself in love with this person? And if I cannot, then I might ask myself, what's in the way? What's there that I'm saying is a barrier for my expression? And am I willing to handle that barrier? Not because it's my expression. Stop saying the barrier's coming from them. Stop taking responsibility for your own expression. And you might get to a point where you're saying, I'm actually unwilling to express my love here. Okay, I get that. I'm not even going to ask you to move that out of the way. I just That's a great place to land up. I'm actually unwilling to freely express my love for this person. And then you might get to the blame conversation again. We have to skip back a few chapters and read that again to get what it's really all about. So... You know, it's like everything else in life, you know, like we've got a lot of explanations for why we do what we do without telling ourselves completely the truth about why we're doing what we're doing. And to kind of look back to the blame thing, you know, that's just a desire to punish. Oh, I might withhold my love, which is one of the biggest ways, by the way, people pretend they're okay, but actually they're withholding, like they're not fully expressive. So they withhold and they withhold and they withhold. And I would say to people, Do you think your children don't see you doing that? I really like the example of not necessarily, I mean, I agree with you. It's, you can't tell someone, this is what love looks like. This is how to love. Well, as Gandhi said, be the change, right? So showing how you show up in love just by showing up and being fully present. I I find that really helpful. And I think that can be so applicable to many things in life in terms of learning how to do something and doing something well is doing the thing, failing at it, getting outside of your comfort zone, challenging yourself to be vulnerable. And so, yeah, I find that very helpful. Gary, I want to be mindful of your time and your voice and your sniffles. I'm losing it. With every passing minute, I'm losing it. Do you have anything else you want to add to the conversation or perhaps a key takeaway from the book that you want to make sure gets highlighted? I would say this to people, there's there's not a minute to waste. Every passing moment is another moment where you could show up as something that perhaps till this point you've never had the opportunity to. And to me, that's powerful. That's it. To grasp the opportunity to be someone is your power. And you're either going to, like I said, grasp it or you're just going to kind of float along in who you've become. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to mention again that I said in the introduction, this is a book I think worth reading as a human being. (laughs) And Gary, you really did cast a wide net with Grow Up. And so, so helpful to pick it up. And I mean, it's such a, you could get through this book in one day. You can, I mean, my plan is to have it as a resource. And like we were talking about earlier, okay, I need to go back to the chapter on blame as many times as it takes. <laughs> so I appreciate the work that you do and, and that you share it with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Tessa. Thanks, Gary. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved podcast. 
please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.